0: Working against the nuclear madness and nuclear interests can be a long, cold, depressing trip of speaking truth to power that just doesn't want to listen. So when you hear... I'm at
1: the UN in New York City. A historic moment just happened. The United Nations just voted almost by consensus in favor of this treaty to prohibit the use of nuclear weapons and to move forward with getting rid of them. This is a tremendous moment because it's saying the rest of the nation don't want this, don't want to proceed with this, and so
0: for truly moving forward with the abolition of nuclear weapons. When you hear breathtaking information like that, You're right in thinking that maybe, just maybe, there might truly be a way out of the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what
1: have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear Hot Seat It's the bomb.
0: Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, our featured interview is with Dr. Gordon Edwards of Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. We talk about the proposed Chalk River nuclear waste megadump, which just happens to be adjacent to the Ottawa River and upstream from the drinking water for Ottawa and Quebec. And as you heard, we have a special report from Heidi Huttner. She is director of the Sustainability Studies Program at Stony Brook University and associate dean in the School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences. Heidi was calling us directly from the United Nations within an hour of passage of that nuclear bomb ban. Very exciting audio. Plus, of course, we have our regulars, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, the Nuclear Reactor Duck and Cover Report about the latest problems with our crumbling fleet of U.S. nuclear reactors, plus news, attitude, and more honest nuclear information than the G20 nations bothered to discuss with Donald Trump or probably anyone else. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday... July 11, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off with the big planetary story, after a decades-long effort by the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICAN, and 72 years after their invention, on Friday, July 7, 2017, Nation states at the United Nations formally adopted a treaty which categorically prohibits nuclear weapons. Until now, nuclear weapons were the only weapons of mass destruction without a prohibition treaty, despite the widespread and catastrophic humanitarian consequences of their intentional or accidental detonation. Biological weapons were banned in 1972 and chemical weapons in 1992. Now, ICANN's executive director, Beatrice Finn, said, We hope this marks the beginning of the end of the nuclear age. It is beyond question that nuclear weapons violate the laws of war and pose a clear danger to global security. No one believes that indiscriminately killing millions of civilians is acceptable, no matter the circumstance. Yet that is what nuclear weapons are designed to do. Today, she was speaking on Friday, Today, the international community rejected nuclear weapons and made it clear they are unacceptable. To provide a sense of what it was like to experience this historic event, we called Heidi Huttner at the United Nations. She was present for the discussions over many weeks. As I said, she is the Director of Sustainability Studies Program and Associate Dean in the School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences at Stony Brook University. We spoke less than an hour after the vote took place and you can hear it in the overlapping excitement of our exchange heidi where are you and what just happened Well, I'm at the UN in New York City
1: and a a historic moment just happened. The United Nations just voted almost by consensus. One vote abstention, one against, and all of the other 122 voted in favor of this treaty to prohibit the use of nuclear weapons and and to move forward with getting rid of them. Now, we know that, you know, the, the nine nuclear nations are not here and they're not participating. But this is a tremendous moment because it's saying the rest of the nation don't want this, don't want to proceed with this, and so it's for truly moving forward with the abolition of nuclear weapons.
2: In reading about this, I have been in tears this morning.
1: Tears, and tears, so lots of tears. So, okay, so here was the moment. I was in there when they voted, when the when the vote was announced and sealed uh, officially, and people were cheering, crying, hugging. It was a really powerful moment. And I was right next to the two nuclear nuns, Carol Gilbert and Ardeth Platt, and they were the two nuns who went to jail in protest of nuclear weapons. And they were crying all the women from ICANN who have come from all over the world. Weeping. Too. And then Kathleen Sullivan who from the Hibakusha stories. Uh, Robert Kronquist who's also from Hibakusha. Everyone was weeping. Many women from all over the world. And then Australia, Japan, India. There was an amazing speech by the ambassador from south africa who spoke about this being the eve of nelson mandela day and how he is watching in this moment and weeping and so proud of this vote it is thrilling
2: even from a distance
1: to know what has happened
2: and that the history is here right in front of us right at this moment and What's the next step? What do we do to start implementing this around the world, including here in the United States, which has been probably will be the last one to sign on?
1: Right. So I think what this is saying is, look, we have the rest of the world in support of this. And for those of us who, who are active and advocates on behalf of the abolition of nuclear weapons, we can now use this as a tool to both divest from banks that invest in nuclear weaponry, it's a really big one, the divestment campaign, and get this message out on social media. Everyone should be doing it. You've got plenty of opportunity now. Uh, you have material to work with. You can go to the ICANN website. There are leaders internationally and in promoting this, so there's lots of photographs and material there and articles. You can follow me, HeidiHutner.com. You can follow me on Facebook. I've got lots of photos. And retweet, re-Facebook. I mean, get it out there. We know our president. We know these people. Social media works. So use that, and write letters to your editor. You know, Tell your congressmen, reinforce this, and, and congresswomen and senators, reinforce how important this is and how we need to join with the rest of the world, and ab- abolish these horrific, horrific weapons. In looking at the film that you posted,
2: the video that you posted about yes, the moment when the vote happened and everybody's standing and applauding, the one thing that bothered me was in the panning around the room, I did not see any, I saw one camera that looked like it was from a major news organization and it was that mm-hmm. kind of a camera, but other than that, I did not see any significant video presence from the mainstream media.
1: Have you gotten uh, uh, coverage? There is coverage they're not allowed in that room. So I don't know how those people got I mean we just I walked in and turned my iPhone on. I'm not even technically supposed to be there. I'm not part of quote civil society, but I'm there anyway. And no one's sort of stopping me. But there is a camera room that you couldn't see where there are cameras and they're they're videoing from a side point. So yes, there is media here, but they're not allowed in that room. In fact, I had a cameraman who was supposed to come with me, and he explained he can't go in that room, and there was an event prior to, it was supposed to be 8.30 this morning, and we have terrible weather here, so there was going to be a lot of coverage of that, and it's raining, and we couldn't do it. It was in the outside, because it's very, the cameras here are very limited where they're allowed to shoot. That's why you didn't see them. Thank you for clearing that up, because that, I'm always sure.
2: for where, the, where the media is.
1: I'm looking at media right now, actually, in another spot. There's a bunch of cameras. So the Japanese Nippon is here. I just was talking to them at length. And the Nippon uh, media is here. So Japanese are watching. I'll tell you that for sure. So at this point, we
2: need to not only today, but every day moving forward. We need to tweet. We need to Facebook. We need to use every social media tool that we have
1: heard
2: of. And also to put people in touch with Don't Bank on the Bomb, which has what you say. Or bank about divesting from nuclear weapons because they may yes. not want to, to our voices, but they will listen to our money when it starts to disappear.
1: Absolutely. And I want to make one more point, and I have a piece coming out in Ms. Magazine in print in the fall on this and in other places, TVA, um, is that in the preamble and in this treaty, there is, and this is a historic thing, and, and people should just really pay attention. So, and we have Mary Olson to thank for this, who's been speaking internationally on this issue, and also the work of Arjun Makajani. Their work shows and I'm sure you know this, but not everyone does, that women are disproportionately affected by exposure to radiation, significantly so. Women are twice as likely to get cancer from the same exposure to radiation as an adult white male, and children are mentally more times likely to get cancer from that, and little girls most of all and fetuses are the most vulnerable so that is actually in the treaty which is extraordinary and this is not you know a social justice issue although it is social justice it's, it's, a, it's a health issue it's a scientific fact and so that is in the treaty and also the impact the, the disproportionate impact on indigenous communities that's also radical so th- this is an important treaty and that's really calling attention to this issue now so for those of us concerned about nuclear power remember radiation is radiation so you you know don't shy away from covering this this problem of nuclear bombs i mean it's all connected radiation and safety health dangers is is applicable to all radiation right all ionizing radiation so we we need to pay attention to it and i'm really thrilled and i know mary's thrilled i've met with mary and i interviewed her and i interviewed arjun and they gave wonderful presentations early on in this conference and i heard them and i'll be writing about that i've had mary on the
2: show several times talking about that very issue and i will undoubtedly be rerunning it very soon Anything final you would like to say in celebration of this momentous, truly historic moment and event?
1: I would say, look, look what these people accomplished. It is truly remarkable. That means if we keep putting the pressure on, we keep getting active, we don't lose heart and say, oh, nothing can be done. I mean, something historic has just been done. This is huge. Now we must continue. It's not over. And now we must bring in the nuclear
0: nations. And we can and we will. Yes, we will. Heidi Huttner, Director of the Sustainability Studies Program and Associate Dean of the School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences at Stony Brook University. You can follow her work, which is brilliant and non-stop, at HeidiHuttner.com. We'll have a link up on the website. Now, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons will be open for signatures by member states at the United Nations as of September 20th. All it will take is 50 of these states to ratify and make the treaty legal. Then it's a matter of implementing, but we're all going to get to work on that. And there will be information in the final thought today on how you, yes, you, in your own hometown, wherever that may be, can participate in ending nuclear weapons. In other news this week... Hackers have breached at least a dozen U.S. power plants in attacks in May and June alone, according to intelligence officials. Hackers sent highly targeted emails to senior engineers at operating firms behind the nuclear plants, mimicking job applications but laced with malicious code, according to the New York Times. These techniques resemble those used by Russian specialists linked to previous attacks on energy facilities. Bob Alvarez of the Institute for Policy Studies cited five previous times that hacker attacks have been effective. In 1902, at Ignalina Nuclear Power Plant in Lithuania. 2003, the Ohio-based nuclear power plant Davis-Bessey. In 2006, at Browns Ferry in Alabama. The 2010 Stuxnet virus used at the Bashir Nuclear Facility in Iran. And in 2014, hackers infiltrated the South Korean Hydro and Nuclear Power Company's commercial network. In 2016, the Nuclear Threat Initiative noted that cyber attacks are increasing and many states have essentially no effective security measures at nuclear facilities to address these cyber threats. Like Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant at the foot of Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Despite the fact that the nuclear... (coughs) sites. Pilgrim as one of the nation's worst performers, the facility is looking to take a pass on cybersecurity measures because, hey, it's only going to be operating for another year and a half. What could go wrong? As Diane Turco, president of the Cape Downwinders Citizen Group, said, Planning to close Pilgrim within two years should it not release energy from being accountable for mandated public safety upgrades. A quick look at other reactor problems with dock and cover. Grand Gulf in Mississippi had an event or condition that, at the time of discovery, could have prevented the fulfillment of the safety function of structures or systems that are needed to mitigate the consequences of an accident. Susquehanna in Pennsylvania lost secondary containment, a loss of safety function as well. Oyster Creek in New Jersey had a scram or a sudden shutdown of the reactor, like screeching on the brakes, which is never good for any car, let alone a nuclear reactor. (coughs) And as regards Diablo Canyon in California, late this morning, Judge Mary H. Strobel ruled against the World Business Academy's lawsuit to require the California State Land Commission to revisit... Pacific Gas and Electric's Diablo Canyon lease by requiring an environmental review. This for a nuclear reactor built on multiple earthquake faults directly on the Pacific Ocean with known problems already with dry casks. Thanks to Milo Reason for the heads up, and we will have more details on this breaking story next week. (coughs) Closing out the U.S. report with this numbnuts-adjacent story. At the Rocky Flats Wildlife Refuge which is what they are calling the former nuclear weapons production facility and Superfund site, around 300 prairie dogs are going to be relocated to the area. While environmentalists say, oh, the prairie dogs will be just fine, Leroy Moore with Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice says, this makes a bad problem worse. They will bring up plutonium, meaning when they dig in the ground, and it will blow onto the refuge. We don't know what will happen to the prairie dogs themselves, but they will endanger humans. Over to Japan, where the head of that country's Nuclear Regulation Authority told Tokyo Electric Power Company's top management he questions their attitude towards decommissioning of the triple meltdown Fukushima nuclear power plant and the company's ability to resume operating its other reactors. NRA Chairman Shinichi Tanaka said during a special meeting with top management of TEPCO, I feel a sense of danger. Under consideration is whether to approve TEPCO's plans to resume operations of two reactors at its massive Kashiwazaki-Kariwa plant in Niagata Prefecture. The NRA's safety screening found that TEPCO failed to report insufficient earthquake resistance for an emergency response center at the Niagata complex, even though it knew about the insufficiency for three years. Tanaka said, An operator lacking the will to take the initiative does not have the right to resume operation of nuclear reactors. And now... Nuclear Hot Seat Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of the week. The European Union is considering lifting an import restriction on rice produced in Fukushima Prefecture, which was hit with the triple meltdowns and is still leaking radioactive water into the Pacific to the tune of 300,000 liters a day. And they're also considering lifting their import restrictions on wild vegetables and marine products from Japan, including shrimp, crab, octopus, yellowtail, red sea bream, and bluefin tuna. Well, what do you expect? Six years? Why not lift the restrictions? After all, the 2020 Tokyo Olympics are just two years away, and the illusion must be created internationally that food that comes from Japan and specifically from northeast Japan around Fukushima is safe to eat, whether it is or not. And for whatever reasons or trade agreements or money under the table or whatever it took for the consideration of this ban to be lifted and the need for these radiological certificates to be lifted, you, European Union, are this week's New- Clear hot seed None sound a week. Some good news? In Germany, their Renewable Energy Federation reported on Sunday, July 9, that renewables supplied a record 35% of the country's power in the first six months of 2017, a 2% increase from 2016. In comparison, in the United States, we generated only 15% of our total electricity from renewables. France may close as many as 17 nuclear reactors by 2025 as it seeks to reduce the share of nuclear power in its electricity mix. This according to Environment Minister Nicolas Ula on Monday, July 10. The Russian state's nuclear corporation, Rosatom, is losing hope in its international nuclear build campaign. Rosatom's Deputy Director, Vacheslav Pershuskov, called the market for nuclear power stations abroad «exhausted». That was his word. We see that the market is contracting, and for the sustainable growth of the corporation, we must make our money on something other than nuclear technology. Word is that they are eyeing a move into renewables. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first... Where else are you going to actually hear from someone who is in the room at the United Nations less than an hour after the vote at the United Nations to ban nuclear weapons, except here on Nuclear Hot Seat? And maybe some YouTube videos, many of which we will be linking to on the website. But still, I know you care about getting honest, verifiable, cutting-edge nuclear news. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to the show. And that's what we set out to provide at Nuclear Hot Seat every week. Verifiable information, sourced and checked, plus interviews with people who are genuine experts on aspects of the nuclear industry that the nuclear industry would rather you not know about. We do incur costs to put this show together, and that's where we need your help, and that's why I ask you every week for it. In order to continue to bring you the most accurate, the most recent, the most cutting-edge information possible, we need your help. Any size donation will help. You can go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button, follow the prompts, you'll know what to do. If you want to set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month, the same as the cost of a cup of coffee and a good tip for the barista... You can do that at the big green donate button we've now instituted. Help keep Nuclear Hot Seat alive and kicking by helping us meet our expenses. And know that I and all of us who work on the show are deeply grateful for whatever you can do to help us keep kicking serious nuclear posterior. Now for the interview, and it's a humdinger. Dr. Gordon Edwards is president of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. He is one of Canada's best-known independent experts on nuclear technology. It seems that there is nothing that this man doesn't know. Since he became involved with nuclear issues in 1977, he has worked with the Canadian government, First Nations tribal councils, consulted with government and non-government bodies, and spoken internationally at conferences sponsored by Physicians for Global Survival, International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, Dr. Helen Caldicott, and many others. This interview is the first in a three-part discussion we did on Canadian nuclear issues. In Part 1, we discussed the Chalk River facility and its current plans for over 70 years' worth of nuclear waste. It's not a pretty picture. Dr. Gordon Edwards, so good of you to be joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. My pleasure, Libby. Let's start out talking about the proposed Chalk River radioactive waste megadump. Give us some background on the Chalk River site so those of us who aren't familiar with it can understand what it is, what's there, and why it's so dangerous.
3: Well, the Chalk River site was first of all established in 1944 by a decision made in Washington, D.C. It was a military decision connected with the World War II atomic bomb project, and the idea was to build the highest flux reactor in the world, which would be particularly good at producing plutonium for bombs. And indeed, the first reactor at Chalk River was started up exactly one month after the bombing of Hiroshima, It was the ZEEP reactor, Zero Energy Experimental Pile, and there was a bronze plaque, which has now been removed, stating that this reactor was part of the World War II atomic bomb project, it was part of the plans to produce plutonium for nuclear weapons. The ZEEP reactor was just a small pool reactor to provide details for the larger reactor, which is called the NRX reactor. NRX was, for many, many years, the most powerful reactor in the entire world and all of the plutonium that was produced at that reactor was sold or given to the Americans or to the British for weapons purposes. In fact, the very first sample of plutonium that the British got came from Chalk River just about seven months before their first atomic bomb was exploded in Australia, and it might very well be that the plutonium from Chalk River was actually in that bomb. They used the experience at Chalk River to uh, plan their own very large reprocessing plant, that is, plutonium separation plant, at Windscale in northern England, now called Sellafield. So, Chalk River really was born out of the World War II atomic bomb project. And from right up until the year 1985, plutonium was sold to the Americans. Up until 1975, it was sold for weapons purposes. And from 1975 to 1985, It was sold with a proviso that it would not be used for weapons purposes. So, that's the background. Now, at Chalk River, there was also, because the British were so interested in learning about how to produce plutonium for their weapons program, they actually uh, helped the Canadians to build two, not one, but two, reprocessing plants at Chalk River. One was to separate plutonium from irradiated uranium fuel, and there were two reactors at this point of, in addition to the small ZEEP reactor, there were two larger reactors. The NRX, as I already mentioned, and the much larger, about 10 times larger NRU reactor, which is still operating to this day. And again, they took the spent fuel and they, they ran it through two reprocessing plants. One was to separate plutonium from irradiated uranium. And if your listeners don't realize what's involved here, In order to get the plutonium out of the spent fuel, which is very intensely radioactive, lethally radioactive, um, they have to dissolve the entire bundle in boiling nitric acid and convert as much as possible into a liquid solution, a very toxic, very radioactive, very heat-generating, and uh, very dangerous, of course. Then they can chemically separate the plutonium from the rest of the garbage, the radioactive garbage that's in there, which consists of hundreds of man-made or human-made radioactive materials that were created during the fissioning of the uranium atoms. So it's very messy, and it leads to large volumes of liquid radioactive waste, similar to those tanks that are at Hanford, Washington. And we have 21 such tanks at Chalk River, uh, which are in the process of being solidified. The contents of those tanks are in the process of being solidified all but one which we'll talk about a little later on and so there was a second reprocessing plant which was dealing with thorium fuel the americans were very interested in possibly developing an alternative route to a new generation of atomic weapons using thorium thorium is a naturally occurring radioactive material about three times as abundant as uranium It is not a nuclear fuel. It cannot be used to build bombs directly, nor can it be used to fuel a nuclear reactor directly. However, when thorium is put inside a nuclear reactor that is perhaps uh, fueled by uranium, the thorium atoms are transmuted into an artificial isotope of uranium that does not exist in nature called uranium-233. And uranium-233 is an excellent nuclear explosive material. And from a military point of view, the nice thing about Uranium-233 is that when it is created, it is 100% enriched. You don't need to enrich it, because it's 100% pure Uranium-233. As you can well imagine, then, there are all kinds of nasty radioactive waste at Chalk River. And about 50% of those wastes are military waste, left over from the not only the World War II atomic bomb project, but the post-war nuclear weapons buildup. Canada sold uranium for the nuclear weapons buildup during the Cold War, which uh, lasted right up until 1965, and they also sold plutonium from Chalk River for the same purpose up till 1975. That's where most of the nastiest waste at Chalk River come from.
0: What is the nature of that waste, and what has been attempted in the past to deal with it, and how successful has that been?
3: Well, in the early days of the nuclear program, worldwide, these wastes were very badly dealt with. I'll just give you one example. The world's first serious nuclear accident happened at Chalk River in the NRX reactor. The NRX reactor in 1952 underwent a partial meltdown and a series of hydrogen gas explosions that blew the roof off and released radioactive materials into the environment. And there were a million liters of contaminated water, very, very highly radioactive contaminated water. The same kind of stuff that's in those tanks at Fukushima right now. You've got about 1,500 tanks of very radioactive material, water. Well, that's the stuff that simply ran through a pipeline and allowed to sink into the soil because they had no emergency equipment on hand to do anything else with it other than to run it into the river. So they sank it into the sandy soil, and of course, it does find its way into the river through underground uh, migration. At the same time, they had this uh, devastated nuclear reactor. They managed to prevent a total meltdown, but the core of the reactor was destroyed, and they had to put the core of the reactor, the damaged core, onto a flatbed truck. Actually it was one of these graders that uh, has a long separation between the cab that pulls the grader and the, uh, the radioactive hulk of the reactor, which was on the body of the grader. And they had to have a relay team of drivers, so that each driver would only drive for a couple of minutes. He'd run to the cab, drive for a couple of minutes, and then run out of the cab, and another driver would run in, and they would drive for another couple of minutes, and then he'd run out. And they just carted this core of the NRX reactor to some place on the Chalk River site, and simply buried it there this will give you some idea of the kind of uh, slapdash methods that were used to kind of deal with radioactive waste at those times it was just a question of clearing the deck so they could get on with the work and the work consisted of trying to restore the NRX reactor to operation which they did they put in a new core and they used 600 military men because it was considered a military operation and uh, many of those military men came from the US nuclear navy Under Admiral Hyman Rickover, he said, hey, this is a great opportunity for our boys to learn how to deal with a nuclear accident. So they sent, I think it was about 300 uh, from the nuclear Navy that came up to Chalk River. And one of those people was Jimmy Carter, who was a nuclear engineer in the Navy at that time. So um, this is where Carter got his first real-life experience of dealing with a nuclear accident.
0: And certainly it wasn't his last. I remember the yellow booties at Three Mile Island.
3: Right. So they did an awful lot of things at Chalk River in the early days. Uh, They also vitrified some of the waste. Vitrified, again, for the benefit of people who don't know the word. It means taking the liquid left over from reprocessing, you know, having dissolved this witch's brew of radioactive materials in nitric acid. You can then sort of mix it with other materials and uh, create a kind of a glass, a glass block about the size of a five-pin bowling ball. They made a bunch of these vitrified glass containers and, again, buried them very shallowly in sandy soil in order to keep an eye on them and see how much radioactivity leaked out of them over the years. So this was one of the very first experiments in the world of vitrification of of post-reprocessing liquid waste. People have no idea as to how important the Chalk River facility was, not so much to the Americans as to the British the French, and even indirectly the Israeli government, because the French, if we go back before Chalk River, just a few years before Chalk River, there was a secret laboratory set up in Montreal in 1942, and this laboratory included some of the top nuclear scientists from Britain and France, as well as Canadians working in a junior capacity, working on the best possible ways of producing plutonium and separating plutonium for military purposes. Or for civilian purposes, because they had in mind the idea that plutonium would be also the fuel of the future for nuclear reactors. So they had both a military and a civilian focus at the same time. But the main priority was definitely military at that moment. So when the French went back to France, uh, the Americans would not allow them to the French to go to Chalk River because they were considered a, a strong security risk due to their many European connections and also to some of the uh, communist leanings of some of the people in the French contingent. So, they sent them back to France, but those people then knew about the design of the NRX reactor because they had worked with the British on designing that reactor in the first place. So they used that knowledge to help Israel build the Damona reactor in Israel, which they then subsequently used to produce plutonium for their bombs. Meanwhile, Canada gave a carbon copy of the NRX reactor, to India as a gift, and India used that reactor called the Cirrus Reactor, C-I-R-U-S, it was a copy of the NRX. They used that to produce plutonium for their first atomic bomb, which they exploded in 1974 in the Rajasthan Desert. All of this was going on thanks to Chalk River.
0: It's amazing because we don't usually hear the background of how deep the roots of Chalk River go and how deadly its influence has been in the world. Now, there's currently debate or discussion or planning taking place in Canada for the Chalk River Near Surface Disposal Facility, otherwise known as the Radioactive Waste Mega Dump. When was this proposed? What's the thought behind it and how far has it gotten?
3: I'm not sure exactly how long ago, I would say about eight years ago. Due to public prodding, the Canadian government finally woke up and realized that there was a multi-billion dollar radioactive waste legacy at Chalk River and at a few other sites in Canada. There's also a, a nuclear establishment in Manitoba called the White Shell Nuclear Establishment, which is also under the purview of the same organization, Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, that was responsible for Chalk River. Now, when they started taking a measure of the contaminated buildings, the contaminated pits, the contaminated soils, and the uh, liquid waste and the solidification requirements, and, you know, the one thing people should know about radioactive waste is that it's kind of a reverse Midas touch, that Midas, you know, King Midas, according to the legend, everything he touched turned to gold and so he starved to death because he had nothing he could eat, can't eat gold. Well, in the nuclear industry we have the reverse Midas touch, a phrase that was coined by my friend Robert Del Tredici. The reverse Midas touch means everything that you touch turns to radioactive waste. The point is if you put radioactive waste into a container and then at some future time take it out of the container, the container now is radioactive waste. And if that container is put in another container, then it becomes radioactive waste. And so everything that radioactive waste touches becomes contaminated. And so the volume of radioactive waste just grows and grows. And uh, that's a problem in itself. So when they took stock of all the different sorts of radioactive waste they had, they concluded that it it was about a $10 billion problem, a $10 billion nuclear waste legacy. $10 $10 billion of no productive value other than to just protect the environment and protect human health by somehow looking after it very carefully. And, of course, they talk about a cleanup, a $10 billion cleanup, but cleaning up it gives the wrong impression. Uh, when we think about cleaning up, we think, oh, uh, you make it spick and span. No, no. All you do is you, you move the waste from one place to another place. You can't destroy it. You can't eliminate it because radioactivity is a form of nuclear energy that cannot be shut off. And so all you can do is just move it from one place to another or put it into a different package. And so this $10 billion was really a question of repackaging and repositioning all these radioactive waste. Now, we had a previous prime minister named Stephen Harper who, although uh, much more low-key and much more clever, in some ways he was similar to uh, Donald Trump, in the sense that he didn't believe that we needed all these environmental regulations and so he fired two thousand scientists from the environmental agency here in Canada the federal agency and he also put the total process of environmental assessment for nuclear facilities entirely into the hands of the nuclear establishment through the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission so in other words hands off everybody the nuclear people are going to look after their own show Chalk River was run by what we call in Canada a Crown Corporation. It's a totally government-owned agency called Atomic Energy of Canada Limited. What Harper did was he gutted that agency and put the entire control of the Chalk River facilities as well as the other facilities owned by Atomic Energy of Canada Limited. He put them in the hands of a private profit-making consortium of multinational corporations, one of them Canadian, uh, that's SNC-Lavalin, and two others were American, and two others were British. And these guys are operating under a six-year contract that can be extended to 10 years, and they are responsible now for looking after these wastes and are not answerable to anybody but the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, which uh, we in Canada have found to be largely an enabler of the nuclear industry rather than an effective guard dog, more a lap dog than a guard dog. And the CNSC, for example, in their 17 years of existence, have never refused to grant a permit for any nuclear facility. The commissioners have never refused to grant a permit.
0: It's the same as the NRC here in the United States, that it is called the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission as opposed to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission.
3: Yeah, another way, we like hockey in Canada. Hockey is is our favorite sport. And uh, you could say that if you think of the nuclear industry as a hockey team, then the CNSC is more the coach of the team rather than a referee. They never send anybody to the penalty box. They never uh, sort of discredit somebody from playing altogether. They simply give them a pep talk. (laughs) Anyway, this consortium of private companies has now proposed to build a huge mound, five stories high, covering an area that would be the equivalent of 70 professional hockey rinks, above ground, less than a mile from the Ottawa River, The Ottawa River is a major river that flows down into the St. Lawrence and it flows right through the nation's capital, which is Ottawa, downstream from Chalk River. And they propose to put into this dump virtually all of the low, what they call the low and intermediate level waste, not only from Chalk River but from other facilities, for example, the Manitoba facility I mentioned to you. And that would include a great many uh, post-fission radioactive materials including a lot of plutonium and a lot of fission products in various forms, in various chemical forms and physical forms that would go into this dump. They say that only about 1% of the dump would be intermediate level waste, but 1% of a million cubic meters, that's how much they're talking about, a million cubic meters, 1% of that is 10,000 cubic meters. So 10000 cubic meters of intermediate level waste is a lot of stuff. And the fact that they would put it all into one huge mound, so you might think, well, is this like a staging area? Is this like a temporary thing? No. This is intended to be a permanent facility. And they eventually intend to simply abandon it there. So that's the proposal that we're now facing and at the moment there is a an about a 1000-page environmental impact statement that has been produced and uh, We have a deadline until August 16th for the public to comment on this and They hope to get the thing operational by 2020 So uh, that's what we are facing here in Canada, but it's not only Canadians I think that should be concerned about this but everybody around the world because what we are seeing here is imagine if Canada goes ahead and does this, what kind of example does that set for the rest of the world? It basically says, don't worry about radioactive waste, even if it's plutonium-bearing waste, even if it's leftover from spent fuel dissolved in nitric acid, even if it's uh, the internals of nuclear reactors, all of which will remain dangerous for hundreds of thousands of years, let alone millions of years. But it's okay to just abandon this stuff right beside major water bodies, like the Ottawa River, or in another project that you wanted to discuss during this interview, right beside Lake Huron. Uh, those are from commercial nuclear reactors, whereas these wastes that we're talking about at Chalk River are not from commercial nuclear reactors. They're from nuclear research only. But about 50% of that is, of the volume, would be, in fact, weapons-era nuclear waste. It's basically a weapons dump.
0: With so much going against this site, I imagine there must be some major opposition that has risen up. What has been the nature of this, and how effective has it been so far?
3: That's a very good question. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we have found that the nuclear industry has been pretty good at hoodwinking people, uh, including especially politicians by convincing them that uh, everything is being looked after very well and that therefore you don't have to worry your pretty little head about it. Moreover, they have done a pretty good job of convincing people that this stuff is too difficult for non-scientists to understand and therefore you couldn't have a reasonable opinion about it anyway. All of which is untrue. The fact of the matter is this is extremely important material. It's not too difficult for people to understand. It's simply that the industry including the regulatory body, goes out of its way to cast a veil of mystification over many of these subjects by using excessively technical terms, excessively baffling uh, numerical notations, and uh, making it so that most non-scientists, including politicians, feel that it's a little bit beyond their comprehension, and consequently they better let the experts handle it. Our view, on the other hand, is that we are now, and it's only happening right now in Canada at least, we are now really entering into the age of nuclear waste in a serious way, because never before in Canadian history has anybody proposed to abandon nuclear waste for forever, uh, right by the shores of, of major river bodies, and without consideration of perpetual ongoing maintenance and monitoring And intervention, when necessary, in order to prevent any leakage that begins, which is surely going to happen. In fact, even the EIS talks about how much material, including plutonium, will be leaking into the Ottawa River. They don't deny it's going to happen. They simply say it's all very acceptable, because it's within what they consider to be acceptable limits. However, these are only mathematical models. They are not reality.
0: And how strong, how effective has opposition to this radioactive waste mega dump been?
3: The opposition has been growing, but unfortunately none of the levers of power are within our grasp. The industry proposes and CNSC by law, they are by law the agency that determines yes or no to go ahead with this, and we do not have confidence in the CNSC as a guardian of public safety or environmental protection. In fact, the very fact that the huge mess exists in the first place, the fact that the Chalk River site is such a radioactive horror story, demonstrates that these scientists and engineers in the nuclear establishment have not shown any competence in protecting the environment in the past. Why should we think that suddenly they have become champions of the environment? The difficulty, however, is that this is completely, you can't even go and visit these sites. They are completely off-limits to civilians. And because of the fact that Chalk River was deliberately built in a remote area, it's pretty well uh, sort of a, a local wasteland. The only people living around there are people who work at Chalk River. So the result is that it's hard to get people directly concerned about the project. Now, we have managed to stimulate Quebecers' concerns to a certain degree, but not to an official degree yet. The Quebec government has not yet officially weighed in and declared that they will not tolerate a nuclear waste dump right on their borders, because the Ottawa River is in fact the border between Quebec and Ontario, and there are communities living right across the river in Quebec, right across from Chalk River. There are, in fact, public meetings taking place. I'm going to be going to two or three of these in the coming weeks, up on the Quebec side. And also, there has been less concern, strangely enough, on the Ontario side, maybe because the Ottawa River flows into the St. Lawrence at Montreal. So it's the Quebecers who are going to be more affected by any runoff from this waste than Ontario people, Ontario residents. So it, it has been difficult. get an effective mobilization underway. The only thing that I think would possibly work to stop the approvals process of this would be for the Canadian government and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to directly intervene and say, hold on, we do not have at the moment an acceptable environmental assessment process. When Trudeau was running for office, when he was running for Prime Minister, he actually stated that one of his goals was to restore the integrity of the environmental assessment process which has not been done so he has a good rationale for blowing the whistle and saying this environmental assessment process is not adequate and therefore we have to wait until we have a real consultation process with Canadians and with First Nations to develop an environmental assessment process that can be acceptable and then we can revisit this entire question of what we're going to do with these wastes. That doesn't mean that you have to stop the so-called cleanup. You can, you can continue with the cleanup, but you should not be considering the possibility of abandoning these wastes, uh, giving permission to abandon these wastes in any kind of form whatsoever. For the time being, they should be very carefully packaged, very carefully monitored, and kept under close surveillance and not put in a gigantic mound where they will all be mixed together and where the different kinds of waste will not even be able to be recaptured or re-separated out again. They're going to have to be segregated so that we know what's in each particular package. We know how bad these wastes are. Some of them are are very, very bad and some of them are not. That's what we're hoping. Fortunately, we have had an inquiry here in Canada into the environmental assessment process And one of their recommendations of this inquiry was that the environmental assessment process should be taken out of the hands of the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, and the government, the Trudeau government, has welcomed this recommendation, but they have not yet acted upon it. There is a problem, however, and that is legally, under the present law, CNSC does have the authority to judge this particular project. We're hoping... That, uh, that the government will have the fortitude and the foresight to say, well, maybe you have the legal right, but politically we do not give you that decision-making power.
0: Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. This is the first part of our interview. Parts 2 and 3 deal with the proposed high-level nuclear waste dump planned to be sited less than one mile away from the shores of Lake Huron. Part 3 deals with the transport of high-level nuclear waste over public highways from Chalk River in Ottawa to the Savannah River site in South Carolina. As long as no nuclear crisis happens to change the planned timing, that interview will be on next week's show, Nuclear Hot Seat number 213. Activist shout-out! I am happy to report that Jules of UCY.tv has broken the world speed record for recovery from what turned out to be a stroke. She's even been heard doing her own show again on UCY.tv, and that means she will again be able to post Nuclear Hot Seat for our listeners in 122 countries. Brava, Jules, and do not push it. Remember... When in recovery from injury or illness, never do anything today that you didn't feel up to doing yesterday. It prevents overexertion and the chance of relapse. So take care of yourself. And congratulations to regular listener, Liss Fields. Her photographic exhibit about Fukushima, which was taken during a Green Cross tour she went on in October of 2016, is going to be presented the 5th through 31st of August at the Pritchard-Jones Institute in Angsley, North Wales. Liz is active with People Against Wylfa B, a nuclear reactor in North Wales, and we wish her all success with her photographic exhibit and with raising people's consciousness about what can go wrong with a nuclear reactor. Considering she's got 80 photos with captions, I think she's going to make her point. Here's today's final thought. Yes! A big, historic chunk of anti-nuclear news this week, with the U.N. passing the treaty to ban nuclear weapons. Hubba hubba! So where was it in the media? International press and television did a bang-up job of covering this news. But here in the good old U.S. of A., as close to nothing as could be managed... The L.A. Times, my hometown paper, squeezed in a mere 104 words and buried it in the nation section. New York Times put it on the seventh page in the front section, which was a step up, but not exactly front-page news. As for TV, internationally, lots of coverage. USA? I've been searching and finding nothing. Now, maybe that's the fault of my research skill set, But somehow, I doubt it. What's more disappointing is that, in my daily life, I've talked with a lot of people about this historic UN treaty. Friends, librarians, people stuck in line with me at Trader Joe's. And no one, no one, knew what I was talking about. They all seemed pleased to know about the step and that it had been taken, while discounting it with, well... The U.S. has nukes and we won't do anything like that. No one's willing to give up nukes once they have them. Or they would just bluntly say, it won't work. First of all, I'm furious at the U.S. media, of which I consider myself a part, that this story has been ignored or buried. It's like the plume from Fukushima. The radiation plume predicted to hit the west coast of North America eight days after the disaster began. It disappeared from all reports as of day five. The prejudices and biases of the media when it comes to nuclear was made visible then, and now it's made visible again in all of its repugnant glory. Who are these people to remove a glimmer of hope from the news? Do they not understand that their press credential, or even their paying job in journalism, which is such a rarity now, is no protection against the impact of a nuclear bomb? As the maniacs in power keep rattling their nuclear sabers as though it's just a boy's circle game of my bang's bigger than your bang and I'll prove it, can not the reporters and news editors and publishers in this country manage to throw us a bone so that people can learn that somewhere something good has happened to try to roll back the nuclear insanity. And as for those saying it will never work, the nuclear countries will never give up their nukes, what's a humane being to do? The answer is simple, personal, and eminently doable. Don't bank on the bomb. I've carried information about don't bank on the bomb before, most recently on episode 303 from April 11 of this year. And I will be shooting a brief video that fully explains what to do in terms of a presentation to the president or manager of your bank or credit union or pension fund, any financial vehicle at all, to convince them to divest from any company that supports or manufactures nuclear weapons. I'll let you know when that's available, probably within this week. But know that on the website this week, there is also a three-minute video animation taken from Don't Bank on the Bomb that very simply illustrates the goals of the campaign. Look for it at NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode number 316. People, we can do this. And we must, if we hope to have a future. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 11, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from ICanW.org, Plowshares Fund, New York Times, Nuclear Watch New Mexico, BBC.com, Bob Alvarez, myla Reason, Cape CodTimes.com, and the superb reporting of Christine Legere, EnviroNews.tv, dot Truthout.org, CBS Local in Denver, Deunrenard.wordpress.com, japan-times.co.jp, ecowatch.com, Reuters, powerlinks.org, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the soul-dead future-eaters who write propaganda for world nuclear news, Bologna.org, Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, and a shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers, big-hearted planet protectors and peaceful warriors all who gather at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilyn Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. A reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates and cutting-edge announcements about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor as possible, take a moment to send a supporting donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating reminding you once again that the website don'tbankonthebomb.org will teach you how to peacefully fight back against nuclear weapons in a way that really counts, in the bottom line of the money. So go there and take their simple actions. There. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the Nuclear Hot Seat.